Board, well, welcome again to our third episode in the Rethinking Religion Trialogue. I am joined again by Professor John Verveke and the anti-professor Lehman Pascal. <laughs> <laughs> so if we meet, do we explode? <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to see that. I'd pay for that. <laughs> so... In our last discussion, we got to a pretty interesting place. We, we came to the recognition of the importance of something like grief work, and especially the process of grieving the death of God for the inauguration of a healthy religion that's not a religion as an essential process in that, in that inauguration. And we have an hour together, and I think there's a lot that we want to do, so I want to just jump in with both feet and uh, start maybe a little unconventionally, but hopefully it'll get us rolling and we'll see where we, we go. I, I hope to hear from both of you as well on how you'd like to frame this and go forward. What I'd like to do is offer a thesis, an analogy, a little short biographical example, and then a charge. What I see is the kind of the task before us. So the thesis is simple, and that is, if God is real, he cannot die. And if God is not real, he cannot die. So what do we mean by the death of God? Mm -hmm. And the death of God, I would propose, means our death to God or the death of the God-entangled self. There is the erasure of that symbol of ultimate meaning, but I feel that what's involved is not only the erasure of that symbol of ultimate meaning, but a confrontation with the self that needs that absolute. Right? So I, I'm proposing that. Mm -hmm. uh, in Tibetan dream yoga, uh, which works with lucid dreaming, if you have a nightmare, there are three basic strategies. One, you can confront the monster. Two, you can run away. Three, you can let it overtake you and consume you. And the recommended strategy by the dream yoga teachers is to let it overtake you and consume you. And the insight there is that the monster that's confronting you is generated by the very architecture of the dreaming self. And that it's the, the structure of that self that's giving rise to that unhealthy polarity. And if you let the monster consume you, that structure is dissolved and energy is released. I would, I'd like to give the, the little biographical example as well, which is uh, many years ago, I've talked on our, our podcast before that there was a period in my life where my family lost everything and I had to drop out of school. My mother and I lived out in the wilderness for half a year and we lived in a tent and got jobs and got back on our feet. But part of that process was me getting a job at a pizza hut and it was a miserable job with a terrible boss who was abrasive and drunk and irresponsible. And I usually ended up working till three in the morning, washing encrusted pans, uh, and then trudging out to my tent in the forest in the snow and sleeping for a few hours in an icy tent. And after a while, that became an intolerable situation. And I recall as a teenager, maybe 19, sitting in my car in the parking lot, holding the steering wheel, unable to get out of the car and go into that workplace one more day. It just felt intolerable to me. 
And I was full of anguish. And I remember had, I'd heard about being present to intense emotions, to sitting with them and not in a Zen-like fashion, not interfering with them, not manipulating them, not rejecting them, just receiving them. And so I tried that. And after a while, I felt this fountain of joy rush through my body in a kind of release. And in that moment, I could see that the structure of myself was holding thought in particular patterns and loops that caused this energy to circulate in a particular way in a very constricted, narrowing way. And as I saw that that was happening, that as I was present to the emotion, it released it. It, the, the whole structure was dissolved and then the energy was released. And I felt joyful. I went inside and I also had a lot of clarity that I eventually got out of the job pretty quick over the next couple of weeks. But I wanted to mention that, especially this early example of that from my late teen life, is that I rem remember thinking at that time, why don't they teach us this? Why don't they teach us how the self enacts a world? I could see how I was involved in that perpetuation of that suffering structure. And it was the very posture of myself that was generating that, why don't we learn that? And to me, there was this, in, in speaking about it now, there's a similarity between that process and what is involved in Tibetan dream yoga with the, the allowing the monster to um, basically consume you. Again, both of them releasing that structure and my thought is that's something that we need to do in this grieving process of the death of God is confront that historically inherited God self structure and really feel into what's involved in that. What, is, what are its needs? What are its assumptions? What are its wounds? And, you know, culturally, we've had the God figure crossed out but we haven't addressed that deeper structure. So often we just fill in the, that empty space with other, other entities, many of which are you know, even less healthy for us than the, the mythic God was for people. Um, so there's a process I think that we need to have of, of moving through a kind of a dark night of, of really that dying to self as well, you know, the whole self-structure that, that needs the absolute God. And what, what my, my question here, I think that's the charge, our task. And my question here is, what does that look like? What's involved in that process? And yeah, that's, that's where I'd like to, to kind of leave it and, and open to you all for your thoughts and, and your own framings as well. Do you want to go first, John? No, I mean, you can go first this time. Okay. That's, that's nice, Bruce. That's very evocative. And I yes. think, uh, you know, it reminds me of some of the things uh, Greg Henriquez is talking about with triple negative neurotic looping, right? That we're one of the first things we have to do is evade the resistance where we're feeling against the feelings and locking the problem in place. And I think we need to think the death of God in a way that also applies, as you were hinting at there, to substitute gods to the same phenomenon of God that might appear in seemingly secular atheist or scientific domains. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When I've been contemplating this, I'm, I've been thinking about um, grieving in as having two complementary aspects. 
right? One is how to go through the emotions adequately. Uh, the art of grieving in general, to move through stages, to physiologically allow these pulsations of sorrow, to intensify some feeling and explore its subtle edges and not get lost in the narrative and evade the interruptive mechanisms. Uh, and the other aspect of it is to stay present to and connect with what was actually been lost. Mm. So that's the question here for me. To grieve the death of God requires an intensification of our sense of what God it is that's being lost. And clearly the ability of some people to profess simple monotheism has not vanished. And no. clearly the capacity to enter altered states in which the self is uh, coincident with omnipositive, excessive quasi psyches that haunt all intelligibility and promise a new way of life. That's not vanished. We mm. still can and should have those experiences. So what's been removed that makes grief available to us? What's the specific loss that, Nietzsche's mad saint reproaches the atheists for not appreciating. Uh, and I would argue that there's maybe two aspects of that, two deaths. The first death is the unreliability for thoughtful, well-informed persons of what I would call the particular's ability to instantiate the universal. Right? Our local temple is no longer sufficient to uniquely and totally present the all-being because we accept other presentations as potentially viable. Our nation is not necessarily the one predestined pure race. Our word God may be unable to fully represent what it points toward. The simple promise can't be believed at face value. One, the one relationship doesn't solve all relations. So the basic context I think is lost to be grieved in which the wise can with good conscience simply affirm one representational instance as the adequate knowledge of the universal. So the idea of God does not adequately fill the God-shaped hole in our hearts anymore. So that's the first death. And the second death is what we were discussing last time. I think it's um, the death of the sufficiency of the absolute difference between difference and non-difference. Right, that the, the absolute relative distinction doesn't quite hold anymore. The death of the pre-transjective. Uh, it no longer holds sway as the explanatory root of how we approach problems. So I think those two aspects of a death have occurred. And we need to know them more clearly in order to grieve them more competently. Even though by knowing them, we, we haven't done enough. We still have to lean into the feeling of the absence and disruption and let those pangs go deeply into the flesh. Wow. <laughs> Both of those were amazing. So I agree with everything uh, with Bruce's framing. Um, and uh, the, I wasn't, yeah, I mean, I think it's clear we're all in agreement. We're not saying there's absolutely no referent for this term or something like that. That's not what's on proposal. I mean, the term God, right? But what's, especially what Lehman laid out, right? Um, that, you know, uh, we, we are accepting a pervasive pluralism and we're also accepting irresolvable ambiguities within all of our epistemic projects, right? Uh, and so, yeah, I, I mean, Godelian things. We can't get both, you know, comprehend, it can't be both complete and consistent and et cetera, et cetera. Like, so, so that is actually what I'm pointing to. And, and um, when, I, when I said the death of God, I'm pointing to that and, and Nietzsche was clearly pointing to that with the, when the madman runs into the marketplace and yelling at the atheists, uh, you've wiped away the sky. <clears throat> and so for me, what I mean by that, 
picking up on what Lehman said is the, the grief is that we've come to realizations that don't fit into our basic day-to-day cognitive grammar. So the analogy there is when you know the relationship is over. You have the proposition. You may even be like, like one that you want. I, I don't want to be with Agnes anymore, right? <laughs> right? And this, right? Yes, it's over. But that doesn't mean that all the non-propositional machinery, uh, right, uh, has now adjusted and be, be, been, you know, adequated to that fact. If we want to say propositions refer to facts, which I don't find that terribly problematic. So what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is we are we are not grieving the death of God precisely because we have now moved to a fundamental pervasive hermeneutic that prevents anything else from taking the place of that particular two-world, right, uh, super-being mythology. My evidence for this is the pervasiveness of the hermeneutics of suspicion, what I've been talking about quite a bit, that we have now reached, right? It's it's like the person who has just broken off a relationship is now, it is almost misogynistic if they were straight, for example. I don't want to have anything to ever do with women again. And all women are, right, we have this hermeneutics of suspicion that has become pervasive, which is, right, Appearances are deceptive, distractive, distorting. They will always mislead us. The moment of truth is when we can reveal how we've been deceived. We can show how the cabal or the conspiracy, right? And so, which is a very Gnostic structure, of course. People don't realize what it is. It is not that it is free from religion. It is a particular noxious, and not all forms of Gnosticism are. I I acknowledge that. But it's a particularly noxious form of Gnosticism that has been adopted. And in young sort of sort of prophesied that that would happen, right? Um, And so that's what I mean. What I mean is we've not grieved the death of God because we are are so still stung. We're still in the, like when they talk about grief, we're still in the shock phase in which we we are reacting with this pervasive hermeneutics of suspicion that is unchallenged. And we also conflate that, I think mistakenly so, with what Lehman was just talking about, what we were all talking about last time, which is the realization that this absolute distinction between the absolute and the relative is breaking down, transjectivity is more important than objectivity and subjectivity, et cetera, right? And, and, and it's, it's like the idea is the hermeneutics of suspicion is the best way to acknowledge the ambiguity, et cetera. And that's like somebody who's, again, it's like I got hurt, and therefore, I'm never going to be in a relationship again. I suspect everybody's just out to get me. Um, and of course, that very readily bleeds into out, out to get me conspiracies that are now pervasive um, and growing uh, repeat, uh, uh, exponentially, as far as I can see. Um, so part of what I meant, uh, and I think this goes to what you're saying, Bruce, is the, the way it's entangled, but um, I, I want to make it not just sort of a psychological property. I want to make it more at the level of the cultural cognitive grammar in which we have not understood how to come into, right, where we deal with what, what's behind that, to my mind, is a profound kind of disappointment with reality. It's almost like, well, you know, it's alluded to in the, in the first noble truth, right, this sense of reality being fundamentally disappointing uh, 
And then that bumps up against sort of at ways in which our perspectives can clash, exacerbated by pluralism, right? And, and so such that we find reality absurd. And so we, uh, right? And so we are disappointed, we're alienated, things are absurd. And that's, that's where I think we're at. And I don't think, um, I don't think the atheism uh, uh, of today does anything to ameliorate any of that. I think, in fact, it exacerbates it by encouraging the anger and the disappointment and the ridicule. I mean, ridicule is a really clear sim symptom of, of disappointment, right? That's what it points to. Like they, right? It's like, well, maybe you should step back. And, and I think this is what Bruce was alluding to, and I'll say this and then I'll let it go again. And step back and ask, well, why are you, why are you like, what's, what's in your disappointment? What's in your disappointment such that you are attached to the hermeneutics of suspicion so strongly? What's in the disappointment? And what is it you feel you could never get again? And that's, right? Because you do that when, you, when you're with your friends who are grieving the loss of a relationship. They'll say, I'll never find love again. That's one of the most common responses. And you feel that, I'll never feel, find love again. And then all your friends tell you, yes, you will, and you don't believe it. And then lo and behold, if you grieve properly, you do find love again, generally, right? Um, and that's, that's sort of the allegory I'm working with, Bruce. And so I, I, I agree with both of you. I, I'm definitely not trying to say, like everything Lehman said is right. People are still capable of all of these responses, but they're within a framework that, well, just can't possibly home them. Um, I haven't started it yet, but I want to. Maybe we could uh, even consider reading it together and then coming back. Catlin Greasy has a book, The Problem of Affective Nihilism in Nietzsche, talking about the affective dimensions of nihilism that have not been properly addressed by sort of the most, the, the philosophical, the current philosophical analysis of nihilism. Um, and for me, um, th that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, there's a sense that the hermeneutics of suspicion is empowered by, uh, by an embitterment that comes from a pervasive, if unaddressed sense of disappointment, similar to somebody who's, right, feels like they could, they'll never find love again. Um, and therefore, they are hostile towards romantic relationships. And we've all met people. We've all even been in that stage at points in our life. Was I'm not going to get involved with that ever again, kind of thing. So that's that's what I wanted to. Um, I'm just I, I'm agreeing with both of you, but I'm trying to give us maybe. And I'm not claiming it's, it's even exhaustive, but I want to give us a concrete, sort of more specific starting point we can address. Yes, I like that, and I agree that. Um... What's involved is, is the cultural cognitive grammar, not just the individual psyche. There's a whole world framing that, that persists in the background to some extent, or at least has not been properly disposed of and is in that polarized you know, um, process of rejection that you're describing. Mm -hmm. And that I think this is one reason, I feel like there's multiple directions I want to go from there, but yeah. there's one thing to say is, that's one reason why David Michael Levin is emphasizing crying as a practice of the self. Mm. There's a, you know, the pervasive subject object split that informs our way of relating to, you know, the world and, and, and engaging in our projects. 
And I think that's related to the, the God self-structure I was talking about. And the way past that God self-structure is not only necessarily the erasure of, of, of that, that sacred other, but also a complexifying of the dynamics of that. So it becomes a dynamically uh, relational picture, um, opening more and more into a deep sense of, of, of relational participatory engagement with reality in multiple levels and in multiple ways. Um, I'll come back to that later, but for Levin, he's one of the things that he looks at frequently is the recovery of, of some of the more primitive aspects of our modes of being in the rebuilding of, of new forms yes. of being and the need for there to be a kind of a regressive recovery of some lost or obscured potentials or, or modes. And he feels that uh, while some psychoanalysts would criticize any subject object dissolution as just pure regression, he sees crying potentially as a kind of regression in the service of transcendence in that deep, a deep experience of, of crying, which does dissolve subject-object boundaries and, and roots you in, 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 a, in a much more primal kind of experience. Uh, this can be what he would say is it takes you back not to an abstract a priori, but an organismic a priori following Merleau-Ponty mm -hmm. uh, of the entanglement of self and world and uh, of, of, uh, of a predifferentiation of, of subject-object that does contain a, or, or communicate a sense of wholeness and being present in and to the world in a way that we, we arguably have cut ourselves off from. And that's part of our, our anguish and, and that, that we experience. And so he, call, he sees this, this process of crying as a process, an integrative process of sensuous rooting, not a you know, cognitive synthetic process of, of putting things together according to certain rules, but more mm. deeply mm. in the body, coming to that place where you really deeply process through grief and you, you actually you contact the world in a fresh way um, in order to move on. And he often frames it as, you know, you know there's a, 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 an oceanic hearing that we have as infants listening with the whole body. There's an oceanic seeing that we have. And those kind of experiences can be recovered and integrated into new ways of being, where he would say it's the recovery of the always already that never yet was. Mm -hmm. When we touch it, it becomes other than it ever actually was for us, but it, it does serve as a bed or as a resource. And so, yeah, that, I think that there's that move towards transjectivity um, and, and all of the things that Lehman emphasized. Uh, I think Levin is pointing towards grief and, and actually the even that, that moment of glassenheit that enables grief that you just allow that to be and to move through you as a movement towards transject 
as towards the transjective, towards a, a non-dual uh, participation in the world again, um, when handled well. And I think you know that our question then is around this whole question of of God and and the grammar that we've inherited. You know, what does the process look like that we really can can grieve it and and touch into those bases in the formulation of a new way of being? Mm. I'm thinking of the cultures being trapped in these early stages of grief and somehow not able to follow those stages through. And the metaphor of the relationship that John brought up is great. So I'm thinking of um, both the person who refuses to admit the relationship is over and the person who moves into this sort of um, angry engagement and ridicule mode. Yes. Uh, unable to feel the pain of the disappointment as it seems like God is a valorized the hidden consistency of our senses and our common sense. Right. And you can take that away, but people still own oh, the relationship isn't, isn't over yet. I, I still can trust my senses and my common sense, even mm -hmm. though I have all kinds of new information, which says I can't really do that. Mm -hmm. So there's people stuck in that mode. And then there's people who are lashing out at anyone who mentions God and religion. And they reminded me of a friend who was going through a breakup. He was grieving. And one evening he was talking out loud. He came to this idea that he, he just, well, I just can't talk to her ever again. And then his next step was, I better phone her and let her know that I'm never going to talk to her. <laughs> <laughs> so those are those early stages where we're stuck are fascinating. How do we move on to subsequent phases and what do those other phases do for us? Right. I think individually, one of the things that sort of disentangles your chemical imprints from a situation. So they're available for another situation. But I think more importantly, and, and very much what Bruce was saying, uh, it allows you to tease out the positive value that you had attached to a particular situation and make it available for another attachment somewhere else. It, and so when the person is, um, you know, as if angry at love itself, right, they're missing the positive valence that love inherently has. And they need to go through the grieving process you know, and we might want to think, what is the what is the cultural analog of those processes by which we could suffer the disentangling of the positive value so that it's available to valorize our new sense of what's behind our mm. common sense and senses. And that new picture is it's incomplete. It's transjective. We need to be able to valorize that in order to come to a new position. In order to do that, we have to sift out the positive value from the situation we previously had it in. And in order to do that, we have to suffer the pain of the disappointment a little bit more richly. Wow. This, this, you two are both being, well, you always are, but it's really uh uh, you always are, but it's, it's really uh, touching me today. It's both speaking very eloquently and uh, perspicaciously. Um, I think that's right. Um, and I think, uh, and thank you, Layman, for picking up on both ways in which people can get stuck. They can refuse to acknowledge that the relationship's over, and perhaps that in the direction of fundamentalisms, right? And then there's people who are lashing out at the possibility of any loving of the sacred. Right and and right and and those are, are the more sort of militant, aggressive atheisms, perhaps. 
and then they get and then they get and then politically culturally they get locked into mutually reinforcing patterns uh where they exist in order to, to destroy the other right um uh, and i think that's a very good analysis and the fact that a lot of that is happening affectively and not just conceptually i think is also uh well taken i think so for me uh, trying to get clear about what it would mean to first start the crying process, or at least uh, the uh, the cognitive analog for that. Uh, what's the effective release process? And, and typically, uh, I mean, maybe slow. We could slow down and ask, like, what happens uh, in crying? In crying is is a parasympathetic rebound. Uh, the sympathetic and, and parasympathetic systems are in opponent processing. You push the sympathetic system very, very hard under some stress. And then, and, and then the parasympathetic system is pulling against it like this. And then you release this and you get this swings too far. And so you get all the parasympathetic uh, uh, system does goes into overdrive. So you slouch, you lose body tone, your ear, your eyes start to tear massively you start right, and we, we sob and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and I I don't know how far to press the analogy, uh, but what I'm what I'm trying to say is, right. In order to cry, we have to first let go of uh, the activated state. So typically, when when I've been crying in grief, it's when I've had moments of accepting that uh, that something is gone. Um, uh, I know that sounds really sort of simplistic, but it's the, 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 it's like there's a part of like so we know what's happening. The amygdala, the sympathetic nervous system, is trying to get retrieve the lost, find the lost person, find the lost thing. The sympathetic nervous system is on overdrive, and then you and then you get a moment where you realize like, it's irretrievable, and that's and that's when you cry. So far, does that does that land for both of you? So far, I mean, that's sort of the physiological, cognitive aspects of it. And for me, it's not clear what the analog is for us. I mean, I think part of it is we're part of it is right. We're still we, we no, it's not gone. Like, and that's sort of a fundamentalist, nostalgic reply. And then there's also the inverted. We can get it back. That's the utopic, nostalgic thing. Right. And then there's also, like we've said, there's like any attempt to do anything like that is just ridiculous and absurd. What is it we have to get people to see? So what I'm proposing is that both of those, what Lehman pointed to, both, if you'll allow me, the fundamentalism and the atheism are both the sympathetic overdrive. Right. They're both reactions to try. Right. Right. What do we need to do to get that shut to shut off so that we can cry? Does that make sense as a question, right? What is it? What is it? Like saying, just saying, like, and, and this is the point where I think we're all agreeing on just walking, and that's Nietzsche's point too, just walking into the marketplace and saying, God is dead, there is no God, or there is a God, and you're just not, not, not you're just in sin, or all of those things, that's not going to work because that's just, sorry, I, I'm struggling here, but do you, I, I, I'm, I'm asking for your help. I'm like, we can challenge this hermeneutics of suspicion, which is the angry response. We can challenge the fundamentalism nostalgia, which is another kind of right denial response. 
We can challenge both the denial and the anger. I get that, right? But that's not enough. Do you know what I mean? Like when I, when I was, when I go through grief, there's some other move. There's a deep sort of, I don't know what to say. Yeah, glaze and height is like it, but there's a move in which you, 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 you choose to stop fighting that's different from just, right? Do you know what I mean? I'm sorry, I'm really struggling here because this is hard. Because uh, we're, we're, I'm really, I take this question very seriously. What's the analog here? What is it? How do, what do we do? What do we say? How do we act so we can get people to do that first, first initial act of stopping, stop fighting and allow the Gelesenheit so that we can cry? What does that look like? What does that mean? Was that helpful at all? I don't know. It is. Yeah, it's a very profound and perplexing problem because I think there are people at different places and, you know, yes. it's not going to be, there's not going to be one response to that, but yes. Yeah. Uh, Wilbur talks about the orange ceiling or the orange pressure cooker lid where there are people who maybe are raised in a religious environment and then they get so far in schooling and it's basically an absolute ceiling saying you can't carry this forward and be a real responsible, respected individual in this space if you're carrying all that mythic stuff forward. And so there's a lot of pressure that builds right at that place. Um, and it, it, people can go off into fundamentalism or go off into the you know, reactive militant atheism. Um, what I'm thinking about, what we touched on a little bit last week, um, at least as part of this, is thinking about what are the interruptive mechanisms that that prevent us from even looking at this question, right? And maybe you know, asking this as a, a an exchange between us right now, rather than us giving a actually just tossing some things into the pot. Yeah. Yes. You know, what are some things that interrupt us from from going here individually in our relationships to talk about it culturally you know and i I can think of some immediate ones to toss out that would be you know to even talk about the god question there's a fear of social awkwardness Mm -hmm. or there's a fear of appearing irrational yes or a fear of appearing needy um so what else what 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 do you feel in, in in your own experiences with this what that's helpful though that's great. That's very helpful. Things that are stressfully occupying you, right? Like in your story about the Pizza Hut, you, you had to not go in to the Pizza Hut, right? Because once you're inside there, your your economic and your social interactions are consuming the space you would need in order to be with the situation more deeply. And so economic and social and social media and screens, right? You could probably say that a lot of our technology and a lot of our economic system keeps us busy, keeps us away from the um, more parasympathetic state we would need to be in collectively in order to um, sit with the underlying mm. pain of the mm. loss. Mm. Mm. That's a good point. There's, so, so there's, so there, there, I just want to gather these and then I'll try not. Right. So I heard from you, Bruce, that what we, what there's, a, a, there's a bunch of things around that make, that tinge this kind of dialogue with, you know, 
the flavor of absurdity. It's kind of absurd to talk this way. It's, you know, right. And then what I heard from Lehman is saying, well, the culture as a whole is keeping us really significantly stressed um, so that we can't let go enough uh, to get the parasympathetic. I want to keep both of those. I think those are profound insights. I want to, I want to bring back the point that I made, uh, which I see in the hermeneutics of suspicion, and I see it both in the fundamentalism uh, and in the atheism, which is a terrific fear of disappointment. Hmm. A terrific, a terrifying fear of disappointment. Yeah. And fundamentalism is basically, I'll never be disappointed. No way. It's always like, no way. And the atheist says, I'll never be disappointed again, right? Mm -hmm. it, there, there's, a, there's a fundamental shared presupposition of, right, that, that I'll never be disappointed again. And then that leads me, and, and, you, and we know that dis disappointment isn't the only, uh, I want to be really clear about it. The deep disappointment is one of the things that literally, and I mean this like diagnostically, traumatizes people, right? It traumatizes people in, in profound ways. And that's, that's also what's coming up in the person who uh, refuses to admit the relationship is over and also the person who gets angry at the very possibility of love. They're basically saying, I'm never going to be disappointed again. I'm never going to be disappointed again. So there's something about, it, 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 sorry, and it can't be that people before us were just live, living wonderful lives in which they didn't experience pain and suffering and hurt and loss of agency and injustice because they they probably experience more than we do. So why are like what what is it that's like what are we so afraid of disappointment? And notice one more point to add to this, and then I'll stop and let other people let you two chime in again. Right? Social media it, it heightens uh, the disappointment gradient because it projects unachievable kinds of perfections and ideals um, that, that people can't meet. And, and one of the expressions of disappointment, by the way, is depression. So people who are prone to a lot of fantasy, and I don't mean imaginal, I mean fantasy, in which I, like, I wish I lived in the TikTok world or something like that, or the way Instagram, they are much more prone to depression because depression is often a disappointment. Uh, response. I'm just trying to think of um, what is it about us now in, in the last while? Is it because we also have recently lost, right, the idea of progress? And there's a fundamental disappointment there. Um, and see, and, and, and our God language was bound up with an ontology of progress. I'm trying to get why are we so super sensitive uh, to disappointment? There's also, uh, there's obvious proximate causes. Like I said, social media just punches us for disappointment because that way that makes us better consumers, right? All the time. Um, but I'm, but that's the, and that's important. But it's only approximate cause. I'm, I'm trying to get at more ultimate causes for why we are so disappointed. And and I think that what I'm saying here can line up with what both of you are saying, right? I think part of the language of we don't talk that way is because we're trying to prevent ridicule, disappointment. And I think one of the ways in which we're, we're really stressed as a culture is we're terrified of disappointment. It's why we're terrified of old age, right? So that's, I, I, that's, that's me throwing my hat into the ring, trying to uh, make some suggestions and uh, of what's going on. I know, for example, when I sit with this for myself, and, I, and I've actually did this pro, pro, uh, practice on the weekend, I, I feel that part of what 
what still holds me um, towards, I don't, I don't want to be disparaging here. So I'm speaking only for me. I don't want to, I'm not pronouncing on all Christians or anything like that. What still holds me in this weird relationship to a certain version of the Christian mythos was precisely because of the way I, right, don't want to process the disappointment that is, is, is there, right? Like the, there's a kind of even an ontological disappointment. The universe isn't as magical as I would like it to be. The universe isn't as loving as I would like it to be. The universe isn't as just as I would like it to be. Right. So we live. We 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 live in this universe, and 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 let's remember everything Lehman said, which people can do reliably. I do too. Experience the the superlativeness of right the sacred, the the superabundance of being, the wonder, the amazement, the awe that's still all available to us. But there's ways in which right, and maybe this goes towards Weber's disenchantment thesis. There's ways in which we find the universe. Is not a cosmos. It's not right. It's not a cosmos. It's disappointing to us in a profound way, and we and I think that the atheist is trying to steel themselves against that disappointment, and the fundamentalist is trying to pretend that the disappointment doesn't really exist or something like that. So that's that's my attempt to help move the dialogue along. Yeah, I really appreciate that, and I was thinking also about my own personal relationship to it and. In a way, there's also a, a kind of mourning for the loss of who I felt I was mm, mm. when I was in that space. There was a time when I did deeply embrace the Christian life. Uh, after a lot of tragedy in my life, um, I had decided to try to be Christian and deeply went into it for a while. And I remember, you know, at that time, there was. A, a sense of a constant synchronicity of things uh, flowing seamlessly together in support of each other. And I would bound out of bed and lift my hands up and I had someone to give the day to this day is for you. Mm. And I would begin that way. And it was with, you know, grounded in a sense of joy and gratitude and thankfulness and participation yes. in yeah. something very meaningful. And so there's a sense of that having been, you know, lost. And culturally, some people might say, you know, I, I can feel in terms of the interruptive mechanisms for, for grieving that are going through that is, well, yeah, you just had to grow up. You know, the world is not that, you know, and to get over it, right? Okay, yeah, but yes, let's get over it, but don't get over it in a way that's unhealthy or, or that's just in a that's just a denial or a rejection without actually processing what was involved in that mode of being. What am I grieving the loss of and, and, and what is still available now? Mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that can be mean, meaningful. Um, I don't know if ritualized, you know, practices are, 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 are things that we can recommend or, or do, um, I was thinking of one, you know, after the Chinese communist revolution, they had something that they called speaking bitterness. People were traumatized by the revolution and they were either 
in a place of apathy where they could not talk about what happened or, mm-hmm. um, or in inflated, you know, perspectives on it, or it, it was in a tangled place. And they, they had a process that they called speaking bitterness, where they were able as a confessional, just to confess their sorrow and communally to listen to that, right? To have a space where you can hear that. And in the work that reconnects, uh, there's a, a process that they call the truth mandala. And it's you usually have a group of 20 to 40 people and you have a, a, a circle in the center with four objects. And there would be a stone and a stick and some dry leaves and an empty bowl. And I have an image of that. I'll show what what that is here. People in the circle would gradually move towards the center one by one. And you could pick up one or more of these objects. But if you pick up the stone stands for the fear, the contractedness of the heart around an issue, whether it's the state of the world or or what the world is like if there is no God, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the leaves are the sorrow. Mm-hmm. What is the sorrow that you feel around the erasure of this central pivoting point of meaning, you know, um, the, the sense of participating in a God-infused world? The the stick is is for anger. You you grip it with both hands and and you express the anger around the whole God complex in history and both the effects of it and our loss of it. And the empty bowl is where you pick it up and you speak to what's my emptiness? Mm. What am I missing? What do I feel is lost? And as each person comes into the group, you know, they can into the center of the circle, they can lift that and do that. And then the other people just say something like, we hear you or we receive that or, or something so that there's a space of, of holding of the expression of that. And usually, you know, they try to encourage that to be relatively brief rather than big speeches, just to really get the, the feeling going. So that's, that's an example. Yeah. I love the idea of ordeal yeah. and ritual coming into this yeah. and the speaking bitterness reminds me of the litany of disruptions aspect I brought to our online ritual last week. Yeah. Um, three other things are coming up for me. Um, one is this, this interesting thing that we've all presenced around our culture's refusal to feel disappointed, yeah. uh, to feel let down somehow, to be part of a full descent into the world. And there must be some uh, domestic aspects to that, you know, the way negative experiences are discussed and allowed in the home but there's also a, an economic aspect to it, which is if our economy is primarily driven by marketing and marketing is primarily driven by telling you that it's going to work out or that you can get something, that the, the sun is within your grasp, right? It's hard to see how we would collectively allow ourselves to go down if getting up is how we run our entire infrastructure. So that's one. Two is... I think one of the places I see something happening most clearly is in the ecological discourse around post-doom, 
Mm -hmm. All right. Are people starting to say to each other, look, it's we may be able to fix some things, but some awful things are already locked in and we just have to be okay with that somehow. So I think that's a place that's very similar to and may even be a facet of the death of God. And then the third thing that came up for me was that although the grieving transformation occurs when you you register that it's really real, that the loss is really real, where you're you're not escaping. Um, for me, it's also a tearing because it also involves realizing that the thing you lost was actually valuable to you, that you're yes. not, you can't escape yeah. it by saying, I never cared, or yes. the positive valence was a trick. It's all negatively yeah. valence, yeah. Yeah. right? There's a cognitive dis, there's a friction, there's an oppositional pull from going, you know, it's gone and I did really like it. I actually did love yeah. that person. Yes. And, um, that's going to bring, I mean, we're coming to the end here, but that question of positive valence and normativity will be on my mind going forward. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, Bruce, I'd like to know more about that ritual. I think uh, practicing that ritual is really powerful. And I think layman's suggestion of coordinating grieving God with grieving the death of the world. Mm -hmm. um, And there's people who are writing about that, like Morton and others. Um, coordinating those together, I think, is a really profound suggestion. I think we should take it very, very seriously. Um, so, first of all, just that. I think we're starting to t- discuss possibilities so that people can enact what we're discussing here, and I think that's what we need to be doing. So I just wanted to thank both of you. I think both of those suggestions about what we could specifically do are gems that we need to think about and try to, you know, we need artistry around them um, uh, so that this can become available for people. I think that that's exactly the kind of thing in in which we could get people to tap into the affect. Um, And I think I was deeply moved by what Lehman said, and, and because in one sense, I, that's been a large part of my project, which is to try and get people to remember how, what was of value in all of these, in all of these wisdom traditions, right? What was the deep value in them, and, and how can we come to appreciate that again? And I think Lehman's also right that we need that. Pro- not that I was going to stop, but that project needs to be needs to be developed and. Uh, promoted more again typically that what after you get past the well or the the uh, you know the valley of grief you come up on the other side you look back on the person not this way but this way if that makes any sense and you come to say well you know the, the relationship is over but i did love them for good reason right and there was a lot that i learned and there was mistakes that we both made and i was hurt Right, but I think Lehman's point of being able to again acknowledge the value of what was there, so that a new value is again a possible for us as some kind of continuity, not not repetition, but some kind of continuity. Right? It 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 it, it had as it has always amazed me every time I fall in love again how it's so radically different than before and so radically the same as before. Mm-hmm. Um, and love is one of those things that does that. One of the things that I have suggested when I was talking to the two Pauls 
Paul uh, Ann uh, Lechner and Paul Vedicle was uh, that we, we, we try talking about the four L's before God of love and light and logos and life as a way of trying to bring out what it was we were activating and celebrating with our God behavior and our God thoughts and our God terms. Mm. Um, so I, I want to continue this discussion. I think it's good. I'm going to read this book before we speak again. I'm going to commit myself to it. Uh, I'm not, I'm not demanding anybody to do anything, but if you two gentlemen would like to uh, do it as well, it might be good to have a foil that we're caught that we share in common um, but that we can do more on this. But um, I do also, I have um, Levin's, uh, the bot, I can't remember the title. It's body nihilism or the body's remembrance of being or something like that. Um, I, I can also start reading that, which I think is appropriate. I'd, I'd like to read this book. But, Could you remind us the name of the author? Yes. It's Caitlin Creasy, C-R-E-A-S-Y. The title of the book is The Problem of Affective Nihilism in Nietzsche. The point is we, of course, and, and the subtitle is Thinking Differently, Feeling Differently, uh, which seems very germane to what we're talking about. Um, and like I said, I think we've already started to say some very powerful things and make some proposals about ways in which people can start to enact the grief. Um, for me, part of the part of it, and maybe this will be the last thing I'll say because we're coming to our end over time, is getting people to realize, right, how much God surrogacy they have in their life, which we've both, which both of you have mentioned on and off. Right? And this is like the rebound relationship, right? Or the people that, people that go out and get a bunch of cats when they're grieving uh, an end of a relationship. People do that kind of stuff. And people make all kinds of things, God surrogacies. <clears throat> and one of the ones we're, we're, that's very pervasive right now, and it's both recent but also ancient, is, you know, family is the God surrogacy for, we talk, you, the TV and everything promotes family and people have their family rituals and, right. And family is important, right. And, and family rituals are important and sort of worshiping the ancestors is important, right. And passing on the lore is important, but family, like everything else, right. Uh, can't bear the burden uh, that uh, of, of, of the ultimate um, mm -hmm. here. I'm thinking of Tillich. Any more oh, people put in romantic relationships or they put in adherence to the market or they put in corporate profit or they put in the alleviation of, of, of suffering. Again, all of these, or at least some of these are completely morally justifiable, but that's not right. Part of it is part of it. I find is people can be in denial in, through surrogacy in a really, really powerful way. Like people who I'll often do people to say they're religious and I say, okay, live without your phone for three days. And then I'll tell you how religious you are. <laughs> where, where, like, where are you devoting attention to? What do you sacrifice time to? What do you go to, to understand yourself? Where do you go to get information? Like, this is like an Oracle God for you. Right. And I carry a phone too. I'm not free from this criticism. It applies to me as well. Right. Um, so I'd also, if possible, I'd, I'd like to, right, also, you know, the dimension of surrogacy um, as something that's also 
kind of a way to people. It's analogous to spiritual bypassing. People are trying to spiritually bypass uh, this issue. So that's one more thing I'd like to put on the table for next time when we when we continue this. Uh, uh, I, 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 I'm loving this and I want to keep it going, not for its own sake, but maybe for its own sake because I enjoy it so much. But because I, 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 I feel that this is an evolving thing that we're participating in, and I want and it ha it's taking on a life of its own in a really good way. So that, that'll be my final word for today. Uh, just uh, if we can bring in surrogacy and if we want to read this book together and so we can you know, reflect on it together and can carry the conversation forward. Wonderful. And maybe I'm committing us to too many, too many steps ahead, but one thing that I feel, I've, I've reflected for a while on this idea of the severing and the silencing. Mm -hmm. And these are two terms that I've gotten from uh, Morton and yep. Derek Jensen and thinking about them in relationship to our, our, our relationship to the world and possibly bring it into this context of, of, of thinking about the death of God as well, where, you know, the severing points towards the, the way that we've, gotten into participating with the world in a, in a very destructive way. We've cut off our relationships with, with all of the, basically the living field that's leading to, I think, multiple crises and our sense of a loss of meaning. And the silencing is what um, Derek Jensen looks at is how, what he says, we live in a culture of make-believe yes. and we kind of perpetuate ourselves through a process of silencing the things that our culture depends on that we don't want to really acknowledge mm -hmm. and silencing minority voices, women voices, animal voices, you know, the all kinds of perspectives that basically end up, you know, silencing the, the what, what wants to speak out about our disappointment, you know, the interruptive mechanisms. There's a whole, you know, envelope, <laughs> uh, that that I think is is established to help perpetuate what he calls this culture of make believe, mm -hmm. and I I think those things would be interesting to explore in this context that that of everything that you just raised, John, and all that Layman has brought in as well. Yeah, that sounds like a a very rich banquet and struggle for next time. All right. Well, thank you, gentlemen. It's been wonderful to be with you. Thank you. This is, uh, this is a great pleasure. And I think it's also great dialogos that we're engaging in. So thank you. <laughs>